All right. Welcome to Union Thoughts. Uh, I'm Connor. I'm joined by Diana. Unfortunately, Jeff couldn't be here tonight, but don't worry. He'll be back next week. Um, We are also joined by, this is actually pretty exciting. We're joined by our brand new producer, Matt, who uh, we've had a request already to refer to him as Producer Matt, not Matt the producer. He is now Producer Matt. Um, and you, you might not hear a ton of him throughout the episode, but he's definitely there. Um, he exists. Don't worry. Uh, so how are, how are we all doing? Pretty good. I, uh, this is producer Matt here. I just want to make it quite clear that I did not come up with that moniker, but rather it was assigned to me, but I am fully okay with accepting it. So that was my idea because I'm, I'm, I'm the podcast boss here. And this is Diana, and this week we are joined by Calvin in terms of which cat is in the room with me as we record. Diana, isn't that the podcast Wolverine Queen? Yes, I am the Wolverine Queen. Do not give that to Gretchen. That is me. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh. Um, so the the Michigan jokes are going to become funnier in just a couple of minutes. Um, you know, I am once again in my bunker. Um I have a light in my bunker now, so like there's a little bit more lighting. It's a little bit less cavernous. Um, I feel like it's getting a little bit more upscale. By the time that quarantine is over, it's going to be like cushioned and just very, very nice. Uh, I really want to know what people who are listening for the first time ever are thinking to themselves when this person's just talking about a bunker that he's currently in. I mean, it's I've gone full prepper uh, during quarantine. We're going to just leave it at that. Yeah. On to the show. During the war, Congress appropriated $400 billion for battleships, bombers, to blow up homes and destroy life. We call upon Congress to show the same vision and the same courage to appropriate money to make life better, to give our children decent homes, to give them a good educational opportunity, medical care, give our old old people security in their old age. But when we call upon Congress to appropriate money to help people, they don't give us billions as they did in war, but they get out the congressional eyedropper and give us a couple of drops. And we believe that a country that has the power and the strength to spend billions to destroy life ought to have the courage and the strength to do the same thing to make life better. That was Walter Ruther, longtime president of the United Auto Workers and architect of the Treaty. Sorry. All right. Um, architect of the Treaty of Detroit between the UAW and the big three automakers and the last president to the Congress of Industrial Organizations or the CIO before it merged with the American Federation of Labor to form the AFL-CIO in 1955. And on that note, uh, we actually have two guests today. Uh, we have Megan Courtney, uh, who is the out- outreach archivist at the Ruther Archives at Wayne State University, and her partner Gavin Strassel as the UAW official archivist at the Ruther Library. Uh, great to have you both with us. Hi, thanks for having us on. I'm really excited to be on here. All right. Well, uh, we're happy to have you on. Um, how are things going in uh, quarantine? Uh, <laughs> they're fine. I mean, there's really nothing new to say right now. I think we're all just kind of waiting to see what fall looks like right now. So, Yeah, we've been working from home, and luckily there's 
plenty for us to do. Uh, a lot of the archivists, if you can't be there in person, you, there's not much to do, but uh, we've been able to stay busy. So it's been good. Fantastic. And how are things at Wayne State like overall? What's going on? Um, there's kind of, there's the ongoing debate about whether or not classes will be um, on campus in the fall. Uh, we still haven't really heard much about that. There are, of course, various committees um, having those conversations. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but, you know, we have had, we're union members ourselves. So we're AUP AFT members. And so we've had quite a few meetings with the union to see what's going to happen with us as employees in the next year or so. Um, but a lot just remains to be seen still. So we're kind of waiting. Yeah. Shout out to my <laughs> fellow local Detroit area union members here. This is yeah. exciting for me. Go <laughs> Michigan, go blue. I know we're talking about Wayne State, but I love Wayne State. My brother <laughs> works there. I was supposed to go there. I was supposed to play basketball there, actually. Really? What, what happened? I didn't want to play basketball in college. It's a <laughs> whole nother podcast episode for that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Matt and I, the uh, native Californians, are um, just kind of off on our own. Um, Diana was uh, trash-talking the great state of Ohio uh, before this. Uh, we're staying neutral in the Michigan-Ohio debate. Can't say that it really matters to us Californians. Yeah, we're kind of off on our own. Producer Matt, shh, you don't exist. Oh, my gosh. Gavin, so Megan, any thoughts on the state of Ohio? Well, as a big University of Michigan fan, um, I know I'm supposed to hate Ohio, but I went to school there for a couple of years, and I realized that Michigan and Ohio are basically the same state. Are you kidding uh, me, Gavin? Are you kidding me with this? Oh, wow. Oh. Way to back me up. Where's the solidarity? Oh, my. We're going off the rails before this even starts. Wow. It's just the only... The only difference is Ohio has a little bit of a southern streak to it. That doesn't make it better. All right. I am so happy that we have Gavin and Megan on this episode for so many reasons. Wait, wait, um, wait. We, we haven't heard from Megan. Megan, how do you feel about the state of Ohio? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm not from Michigan originally, I, but I don't like going there. I can say that. Thank I, you. I do feel like when people are driving poorly, they often have an Ohio plate on their car. <laughs> that is so true. And if you have a Michigan plate and you drive into Ohio, you are going to be pulled over because they're like that down there. Oh, my God. We're getting into some heavy interstate uh, rivalries Thank you, Megan, here. for the solidarity. And Matt and I are still off on our own, not caring about any of this. Um, so to get in, we've, we've got a couple of questions um, for uh, for Megan and Gavin to just kind of share a little bit about what it is that they do. So, so you, you're both archivists. Um, is that right? Great. So I guess how, how do you become an archivist? Like what, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So first off, I'm going to talk a little bit about what archives are just because I think that it's really common that we meet people that don't know it's, it's not something that everybody has interacted with. They don't necessarily know about it automatically. So I always think about archives as just a place that keeps evidence of what has happened in the past. So if you read a book about history, you read an article about it, that person who wrote the book wasn't there. They know what happened because they looked at evidence. So we keep that evidence for people to see, um, which is why, you know, in labor, we think it's really important because there is so much misinformation about what's been happening in the labor movement for a very long time. 
Um, and so our ability to keep that evidence that people can see, like this is how these things actually went down. These are the conversations that actually took place, um, I think is a really powerful tool for us. That's that's a really cool sell. That's so cool. <laughs> Thank you. It, yeah, I uh, I've worked on that one for a little bit. I'm glad it's working out. <laughs> you nailed it. Thank no, you. that's really exciting. Like I I mean I kind of had more or less of an idea, but hearing you put it like that, now I'm just like, well, do we have to limit it to just a few questions? Because now I have a million questions. You can because, ask more. And they and they, I mean like I'm really excited to hear like how how like this we can place some of the things in today right now like you can look at history and see i think that that clip we just heard of walter ruther for example oh man there's labor leaders out there speaking like that to congress right now and i would just love love to hear any member of congress try to respond to that kind of of a speech yeah yeah it's um there are a lot of connections between um, what's happened in the past and and what's going on today for sure um, some conversations that have evolved in some ways and some that are pretty much the same uh, in, in a lot of ways too um, but uh, to answer your question about how we get to be archivists I mean we you know we went to grad school for it is the short answer um, Gavin do you want to talk a little bit about your path <laughs> yeah you know uh, in undergrad I did a lot of archival research thanks to a couple of really cool professors and then once I got done with that uh, and I realized that's something you could go into. Yeah, I got a, a graduate degree. And um, and then uh, I started working at the Ruther part-time and uh, moved into a full-time position as the official uh, archivist for the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, there. And then the uh, UAW archivist position was created. And um, uh, as, you know, it, at the Ruther Library, the UAW collections are, you know, the biggest set of uh, materials there, and it's such an important union to Michigan. It was something that I was really excited to go into. That's awesome too. Like I, I, I was imagining that myself. Like the the UAW archivist at the <laughs> library that's named after the famous UAW leader is <laughs> in the city of Detroit, no less. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, at the Ruther, we have an, like a number of official relationships with labor unions. So Gavin works with UAW pretty directly. Um, you know, he'll meet with people from staff and talk about the things that we can offer them in terms of what we have. And then also, you know, consulting about what future researchers are going to want. Um, we have to, you know, think about privacy concerns and things like that. But like, what are future researchers going to want to know about organizing today so that we can get that stuff um, for them in the future? Um, but we also have the similar kind of relationship where there's an official archivist for SEIU, um, AFSCME, I used to be the AFSCME archivist for a little while, um, AFT, who am I forgetting, Gavin, um, airline pilots. Uh, and we also have farm um, workers. the official papers of yeah, United Farm Workers, uh, the Coalition of Labor Union Women, um, and many other labor unions and labor organizations you said so clue who started clue uh, uh several uh uh leaders of the labor movement but uh i i know i i feel like you may be wanting me to say myra wolfgang Woo! who's yeah, myra no. wolfgang Myra Wolfgang. Sorry, you didn't say this union's name, so I'm inserting it into the conversation. Myra somehow. Wolfgang was the vice president of uh, Unite Here, but at the time just called Here, and uh, it came up through the Detroit local um, 
It was uh, now Local 24, I think before that, Local 705, and, uh, and was just this amazing, and I would describe her as tenacious uh, labor leader. Um, she, uh, I know, um, organized uh, the Playboy Club in uh, Detroit and basically sent her daughter in there to salt uh, the club, and, but they were successful and the contract was uh, basically duplicated around the country. And so she was responsible for organizing that entire um, uh, business. And uh, there's a quote from her that I really love. That's um, women were in labor before men were even born. Yeah, that's the big one. Yeah. No, so growing up in Michigan, in the Detroit area, you learn about a little bit of the labor history and you hear about Walter Ruther. And obviously you like drive on the Walter Ruther freeway and like you, it's all over. But you don't hear, at least I didn't, about Myra Wolfgang. And I think that's such, like, it's so sad to me. So women out there, if you want to read and haven't, for whatever reason, about an amazing woman leader in the labor movement, not like recently. This is like in the last century, just like you hear about the Walter Ruthers. Like Myra Wolfgang, from as far as I know, she organized the first sit-down hotel strike at the book Cadillac which also just won another strike in 2018. So it's just like, it's really cool history and the parallels with Myra Wolfgang as a leader coming up in the hotel workers union then and looking at the leader now, Nia Winston, shout out to her, the president of the um, Local 24 and the Midwest Joint Board of Unite here. Like, it's just really cool to hear even somebody else talking a little more in depth about Myra Wolfgang in a way I haven't really heard so much. And I'm gonna pick your reins more so later on about her. Absolutely. Well, I processed the uh, local 24 papers uh, before I was the UAW archivist. So I'm pretty familiar with those. Yeah. So, Megan, you mentioned um, at one point that, you know, one of the important things of archives is kind of keeping these records so this history can kind of be told. Um, What do you think is maybe, is there any particular importance to keeping labor archives versus just like any kind of archive? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, from my own perspective, I think that the the story of labor history isn't always told in our society as much as it should be. And I don't think that it's a separate thing from our, you know, our broader history, of course. But um, like I said, because there are so many competing forces that are trying to sort of make up lies about the labor movement, it's really important for us to have essentially evidence of facts that are there for people to see. And of course, it's it's a complex story, right? Like all the people in this big web of information. They're human beings. They have good parts and bad parts. Um, But to see that nuance and to be able to understand that in a way that is a really close telling of their real experiences is something that's really powerful. Um, The labor movement in particular, you know, we meet a lot of people who are interested in things like conspiracy theories. Um, there, There is tell of a guy who used to come to the Ruther who really believed that we had Jimmy Hoffa's body buried under the building. Um, not to my knowledge, but you know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of misinformation that can really get um, stuck with people if we don't have the evidence to the contrary. So I think that it's really important to show that um, and to show that in a lot of ways, like these decisions that people are making, it's really not about um, just your big names at the bargaining table. It's, it's millions of people that are doing the best that they can and figuring out how they fit into it and how they can, you know, be brave in the moments that they need to. Um, and so I think that labor history, labor archives in particular are tasked with keeping that set of information. Yeah. You know, it seems like 
it seems to me like if you don't have labor archives and intentionally kind of keep the records of working people, then history is always going to be told from the perspective of the boss. Um, yep. Yep. And that's honestly, um, Gavin, feel free to chime in on this if you want to, but part of the reason that the Ruther archives exist the way that they do um, is that Walter Ruther personally felt that way. It was really important to him that, that there be some place that workers have access to their own history and that they're able to keep that stuff for themselves. Um, and so that's part of our mission. That's what we do. Um, he was working to start the archives for a long time, uh, you know, getting funding through the UAW and all those kinds of things um, before he passed away. The plan was not to name it after him and he probably wouldn't have wanted it <laughs> to be named after him, but um, he passed away in 1970 and we had, we, the building got built in 1974. So at that point they decided to do that. Classic labor labor right there. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you brought up, uh, Ruther again, and we, we started off with a clip by, um, that was actually Walter Ruther speaking on, uh, the Taft-Hartley Act passed in the 1940s. So uh, he's, as has been kind of mentioned, a huge figure in labor history. He's not as loud a figure as Jimmy Hoffa, but arguably is, you know, just as important to labor history. So tell us a little bit more about Ruther as a figure and kind of what the what the archives say about him. Yeah, you know, uh, Ruther um, was, like you mentioned, the president of the UAW for uh, several decades. And, um, you know, he's really known for many things, but if I had to nail it down to two things, it would be um, kind of transformational bargaining gains that he oversaw as the president of the United Auto Workers, um, the, you know, that kind of led to what I think some people like to call, you know, the golden age of organized labor. Um, and, and the list of, of, of those gains is really long, but, you know, things like guaranteed annual wage, uh, cost of living allowances, uh, supplemental unemployment benefits, pensions, um, uh, health insurance for workers and their families, profit sharing, and, uh, you know, bargaining for all these gains, um, you know, through the 40s to through the 60s, it really raised, you know, a whole sector of workers into the middle class and really changed the face of American society. And you really see it and you know, uh, those uh, boom years uh, in cities like Detroit and other uh, cities with large industry. Um, but uh, the other thing that, you know, I really like to focus on is how he was also probably the, the leader of social unionism in this country and, you know, pushing the labor movement not to be just about getting more gains for its workers, but influencing society in general. Uh, he was a huge advocate uh, and proponent uh, for things like civil rights. Uh, he was really close to Martin Luther King. Um, probably if he hadn't passed away in uh, a plane crash in 1970, he probably would have passed universal health care in this country. Um, he was a major supporter, the first supporter of the Earth Day cause. He was a big environmentalist, which you wouldn't expect from somebody uh, uh, who represents auto workers. Um, uh, he champion affordable housing, uh, uh, nuclear non-proliferation, excuse me, and uh, just, you know, almost every major important social cause of that era. Uh, he was right at the center of it, providing resources to make it happen or, you know, advocating it uh, for it in front of Congress. 
And toward toward the end of his life, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he and his brothers became increasingly critical of the Vietnam War in a moment where the AFL-CIO was very supportive of uh, the war efforts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's a little complicated, but um, so there were three Ruther brothers in the UAW. Uh, Walter is the most famous as the president, but also Victor and Roy, uh, who were really amazing labor leaders in their own right. Um, and Victor was the radical of the, the three of them, and he was very much against uh, the Vietnam War uh, from an early point. And Walter, who had a really close relationship with uh, LBJ. Um, I think he had misgivings about it, but still supported it for a time just because he didn't want to threaten the relationship between the labor movement and the president. But then after a while, uh, he did come out against it. Uh, but that was a big, uh, yeah, a big fight between Walter Ruther, who at the time was the vice president of the AFL-CIO, and George Meany, who was the president, because Meany was uh, his big thing uh, besides worker gains was being anti-communist. And so they really butt heads over the Vietnam War. That's really interesting to me because <clears throat> when you first started like going through the list of the things that he fought and like really championed and kind of the gains that we see in contracts today, I'm like, wow, these are all like the standard things we fight for that maybe I'm taking for granted. And then you kept going. Nuclear proliferation? Um, anti-war, like, I feel like we in the labor movement maybe take some of this, I don't want to say for granted, but, I mean, before this world exists the way it does now, like, I mean, the start of the year, we were looking at World War Three, and I can't even think of even the most prominent of labor figures that we respect and love today coming out and being, like, anti-war with Iran, you know? That's so fascinating to me, and I wonder... Is it things that we're lacking or is it fine that labor leaders don't necessarily speak up for anti-war positions now? Is there maybe a reason for it or do we need more of it? I think there certainly were, I mean, there were people during Walter Ruther's time, particularly early on before he had a lot of success personally that, um, that told him that was not what the labor movement was about. You know, they wanted to be focused on the contract specifically and not moving out to those social issues. Um, but I think when he had some success at doing it and like really inspiring people and raising people's expectations, I think that that is really what is the, the most powerful thing about it is raising, like one of the things he said about his reason to be an environmentalist is what is the point um, of, of having more money if, you know, if you can buy a cabin, but the lake is polluted and you can't swim in it. That's not a direct quote. Gavin could probably pull the direct one, but this, the sentiment is there, right? So like, if you're going to live in the world and enjoy it and be a part of it, you have to care about all the world. Um, and so that's, I think, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And also yeah. I can, I believe that quote to be at least somewhat of a summary from a Michigander talking yeah. about the lake house. He yeah. loved fish. Yeah. The, the <laughs> quote is what good is another week's vacation. If the lake you used to go to where you've got a cottage is polluted and you can't swim in it and the kids can't play in it. Hello, somebody. <laughs> yeah. 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 But the other cool thing about the the archives too is that I mean, as a as a important figure in the labor movement, there were obviously people who disagreed with him too. And we, um, because we're getting as much evidence as we can of what happened in the past, we gather those voices too. So we have a really popular collection of stuff from the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, which, um, if you don't know about that, was kind of a late '60s, early '70s 
um, movement that happened in a number of Detroit area plants, and it was mostly black workers who were saying that like your, the UAW is not doing enough towards racial equality. And so you can see all of their arguments, how they're making them, you know, like the, the visuals they're putting into their flyers that are really inspiring people. And you can also see, you know, you can take out the official kind of UAW president's office stuff and compare, like, what is the conversation? How much effort are they spending on trying to respond to drum? Um, and so that's the kind of cool stuff that I think I really like showing people that it's not just this one sided, just because the names on the building doesn't mean that we're not, you know, getting a full picture. Well, Megan can speak more on this, but she does a lot of work with uh, students uh, at Wayne State and other area schools. And a big part of what we try to um, advocate for is information literacy and yeah, teaching those critical thinking skills through primary sources. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's really cool, too, is that, you know, a lot of the classes that we work with are not about labor history, but um, we work it in anyway. Uh, it's a really good teaching tool. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Sneaking in the labor agenda. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so one of the things that's kind of interesting about the labor movement as kind of a social movement, um, you know, I, I my impression has always been that labor unionists are kind of uniquely aware of their history. Um, and uh, even Diana, like, you know, mentioned a little bit about that, like the, the deep history uh, with uh, here in the Detroit area. Um, so what, what do you think about a little bit about like the connection of labor's history to kind of like um, labor's present? You know, uh, I'd say that people who are in a union and really involved in their union oftentimes are really connected to uh, or are very familiar with labor history. But um, I think a lot of people in unions, especially younger workers who are just entering the workforce, it's something that they haven't really learned in school. And um, it's, it's a big oversight in their knowledge and they don't really have a full appreciation of just how the union achieved these gains for them over the years. And, you know, all the, you know, the, the blood and sweat that it took, you know, people died so that they could, uh, you know, have things like uh, unemployment benefits or health care. And, um, and I hear this from uh, education reps at the union, especially on the local level. And so I'd say that, you know, where we come in is we try to provide access uh, to this history so that the union can, you know, tell this story about labor history and, you know, talk about things like the Ford hunger March or the Flint sit down strike and, you know, really educate them. And by doing that, it really helps achieve buy-in for the union, which is really important in the state, especially in uh, right to work states. Um, but yeah, labor history is really great for that in terms of just arousing enthusiasm for what the union does and what it can continue do, doing for them going forward. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's an interesting point because just w thinking about some of what's been mentioned about like the standard curriculum for Michigan, like K through 12 students, just thinking back to going through high school in California, um, the one part of labor history that was part of the standard curriculum was uh, Cesar Chavez. And but it was always very much more so as a civil rights leader. And this, the labor aspect was kind of was there in the background, but was certainly not emphasized. And beyond that, 
all of the labor curriculum was early 20th century stuff that was all very removed from the present day. So it was, it, it was almost kind of presented as this is a thing that was in the past, which sure was important, but isn't necessarily part of our present, which sounds like it's very different than what's taught in Michigan schools. I mean, <laughs> I think Michigan schools also have have this desire to seem apolitical. So if you talk about any kind of, you know, recent labor, people find that to be a very political topic. And so they want to avoid it. Um, you know, sometimes I get a little bit irritated that there is this kind of baked in expectation that you're going to talk about Henry Ford, for example, in your history, you know, with, with elementary school kids, but you're not offering a lot of nuance, right? Like Henry Ford was a very problematic guy. Uh, you know, he was definitely yep. a big old racist, but like they don't talk about that. They talk about the $5 day, which sure yep. happened, but there's a lot more to it than that. So hi from Dearborn, Michigan, right place of Henry Ford. I live right off of Ford Road. I went to Henry Ford Community College and mm -hmm. I was rollerblading today at Ford Woods Park. So on that note, I will say that there is definitely like and I only realized this as an adult who works in the labor movement where I was like, wait a second. I learned so much about Henry Ford. So much. Like it's just like accepted. And but like, okay, things. it's, it's kind of like the Christopher Columbus thing. It's a good story to tell kids. It's an inspiring story. We're going to leave out all the ugly stuff for them to learn as they're older. But we actually like, it's, it is a disconnect with the labor movement. Like we learn, we have like a section in history, like of uh, when we're taking like the two weeks of American history, a section of that is the labor movement. And even though it is Detroit, you learn about Flint and you learn about, um, a little bit of Detroit in particular and its significance, but only because it's local. You don't really know about, like the fact that I mentioned earlier, we didn't learn about Myra Wolfgang because that was too much. And it, it was frustrating to me because even when I was like looking for the job that I have right now, like full disclosure, I work with a union called Unite Here. And it's definitely a union that takes on social justice issues in addition to winning really amazing, great, solid contract for workers. We do that too. But it, to me growing up, my impression was like, oh, the labor movement, that's, you know, white guys who work at the car factories. And so I didn't really associate it in my head as like a movement like the kind of places I was looking to work, which was like nonprofit advocacy. And then I saw the job description for this job and it read like a nonprofit advocacy job. And I just like it, it was like, it was a weird thing for me to experience because I, it didn't seem like that was the place in the labor movement for me to find a position like that I have right now. And I'm very glad to have. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we try to work it in as much as we can. And I mean, like I said before, sometimes it is kind of like, I don't lead with that's what I'm going to talk about, but I do work it in. Um, so that is, you know, I think it's worth doing, but I do think that like getting the message across, there is this common misconception that like labor history is something from a long time ago and that it is over now. And that's the same thing with, with a conversation like civil rights. A lot of people see that as something that happened in the sixties and now it's over. Right. But, but like, we know that that's not the case. If way to blow their minds by telling them that like the labor movement and the civil rights movement are intertwined. How about yeah. that? Yeah. And that's, you know, archives show that it's just a matter of getting them in front of people so that they can see it for themselves. And it's really, you know, it's interesting that Henry Ford and kind of Henry Ford's prominence in just education, uh, educational curriculums was brought up because you hear about Henry Ford, but you don't hear about Ford's 
private security forces um, beating the shit out of Walter Ruther and UAW organizers, um, which for our comms nerd uh, was totally orchestrated by uh, the UAW to make sure that it got on the front page of the newspaper. Well, they yeah, they, they brought the camera people, right? Shout out, comms nerds. <laughs> they, they beat people up anyway. I mean, they made sure the press was there. Yeah, I mean, they beat people up a- anyway, but they just made sure that the, uh, the reporters were present to actually capture it on camera. So you hear a lot about Henry Ford, but you don't hear about the part where, you know, Henry Ford basically ran his own little private militia that uh, made sure that union organizers stayed very far away from Ford property. Funny that you don't see that when you walk through Greenfield Village or the Henry Ford. I wonder why they don't do that. You do see, they do acknowledge they have the signs up at Greenfield Village that said like, Henry Ford only wanted you to speak English. See here. And it had like all the different languages. There's a sign that said speak English. Oh. You've mentioned a little bit the the fact that part of the the archivist kind of job is to communicate some of this history to the public because it's very easy for that to kind of be missed, whether it's not included in schools or whatever the problem may be. So tell us a little bit more about like what it actually looks like trying to get this, um, make sure that the public is aware of this history. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a couple of different ways of doing it. <laughs> um, we mentioned classes. So uh, those are sometimes undergrad classes, sometimes high school classes, but when we work with them, you know, oftentimes the class is about something like public health. And so when we are teaching them how to use archives, how to, you know, use these things as research tools, um, we purposely kind of fold in our different collection areas. And one of those is labor. There's quite a bit. Um, Gavin mentioned that Walter Ruther had an interest in um, universal health care. So like all these things are connected. It's easy to find those things um, and show them to people. It just takes us to do it. We also do things like public events. Um, sometimes we have exhibits, things like that. Um, we'll do community events like um, in January, we had a concert. We partnered with a, a local like music organization. So, you know, getting those kinds of things where people are coming through the door, they don't know about archives, they don't know that they want to come, but once they get in, they get excited about it. Um, that's, that's part of it. And then also doing things like this, like talking to you all and talking to people about it as much as we can. I think there is a common misconception of an archivist as a uh, sort of a dusty person working alone in the basement, and that's really not, <laughs> not true. <laughs> So just showing people. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. That's, I might have imagined that. Yeah. Once or twice when I see the UAW archivists, I'm like just imagining where they're tweeting from. You're not the only one. Um, so we have, I mean, the Ruther is the four-story building right on Cass, which is um, kind of a major street in Detroit. Uh, and it's just the archives. Um, we have lots of windows. We don't ever go in the basement if we can help it. Um, but there are, <laughs> there are like 15 archivists that work there, which is a pretty big staff for archives. You know, there's also a perception that archives are for serious researchers, Mm. uh, which is actually, that used to be the case, um, that you had to show that you had a book deal or something like that for them to let you come in and do research. Wow. I've heard that. Yeah. And, um, but that's really not what we do at all. And we, the, our collections are open to the public. Sometimes we do have to put restrictions on things, but you know, these materials are here for people to do perform research with them, uh, no matter what their background, what's the point of preserving these materials for, you know, decades or hundreds of years if, you know, they don't ever see the light of day and nobody can learn from them. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we really, you know, that I think is the central part of our mission, which is access to these materials. And it's um, not just, uh, you know, historians, 
It, you know, we want uh, school kids to come in and look at them, uh, workers, anybody who can make use of these materials. Uh, you know, they're really amazing. Uh, you can, it's basically like going to a museum, except you can actually touch the things. It's really cool. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So, so I got to ask, um, you talk about coming in and all these like archaic terms for the way we do things. <laughs> can I ask like what someone like me, like, obviously I'm all excited about this. I want to learn more about Myra. Well, oh my God, I want to learn more about Myra. Did we lose her? I think the cat may have. <laughs> we have, we have a, a code five cat situation. <laughs> <laughs> Did it actually happen? Did my cat just kick me off zoom? Yes. Yes. I forgot my, I was talking about Myra. Okay. I would, <laughs> I want to go learn about Myra Wolfgang and there's a pandemic. What do I do? That's a great, okay. So we are still, I will say we're still adapting to this new reality. Um, right now we are not supposed to go in the building, but I think that will probably change soonish. Um, right now, since we are all working from home, um, people can still ask us questions and we have access to some of the stuff if we have already scanned it. Um, but that's a very, very small amount of the stuff that actually exists. So um, the short answer is we will help as much as we can right now, but we might have to wait a couple weeks to get all the full help that we can offer. Um, we do offer like distance research services, um, which I mean, you know, you can find on our website and things like that, but it is possible to find this stuff at a distance. You don't have to physically come in um, even when we are not in this pandemic lifestyle, um, but we do as much as we can. Yes. Also, some, you know, we don't have many of our collections digitized yet, uh, but other archives have uh, done more di initiatives and yes, scanning materials and putting them online. So let's say you want to learn about Myra Wolfgang. I don't know if there's anything of hers online, but her papers, her personal papers are mostly at uh, Cornell. They have a big labor archives there also. Also the official archives of Unite here. And so you could contact somebody there and then they may be able to point you in the direction of what they have. Um, or you can even go on their website and they may have materials available there already. That's pretty cool. And we're all adapting <laughs> to this world. Yeah. <laughs> to, to kind of wrap up, you know, and this is where I kind of reveal that I've been nerding out this entire thing because um, I, I actually am um, at one point in my life was a historian, still technically am. So I've done a lot of archival research. Um, so to wrap up, uh, historians and archivists, uh, you know, often stumble across funny or just kind of interesting things in archives. Um, one of my personal favorites was I actually stumbled across a notebook. It was like in an uncatalogued box that be belonged to Edward Byrne, uh, the Archbishop of Dublin. And it was actually a little red, weirdly enough, was a little red notebook that was notes from a Communist Party meeting because the Catholic Church had actually had spies that infiltrated the Communist Party of Ireland. Um, so it was just like a random thing that I came across um, in an uncatalogued box. So what are some of the favorite things that like in, in your time as archivist that you've come across that are just kind of interesting or kind of like noteworthy to you? I'll just say that the UAW collections at the Ruther, they are massive. They're so, we have um, hundreds of collections from the union or people associated with the union. 
And I've been doing a lot of processing of the artifacts and photos uh, of Walter Ruther's personal things uh, the past several months. And um, so I feel like every day I work with that, I find something really interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, recently I've been finding a lot of correspondence between him and some really amazing historical figures, you know, like Eleanor Roosevelt, Bayard Rustin, JFK, and sometimes you don't even expect it and you just find, oh, here's a letter signed by LBJ, you know, asking Walter to do something for him. And Whoa, uh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's and it's just, um, he really uh, was, you know, at the center of so many different movements that, uh, that it's just any sort of social movement that you're interested in, his papers usually touch upon it. Um, if it, you know, took place during the 50s and 60s. Um, but I will also say that, uh, you know, when you're a labor leader, you get a lot of swag from all the locals uh, and other labor unions around. So I feel like I've been coming across a lot of that stuff, which I like to put on my Twitter. But there's one thing in particular, which was a lighter with the UAW logo, when you light, light it, you turn it on, it plays Solidarity Forever. It had like a little music box oh in it. Oh my God, that is yeah. so cool. So I have a little video of that, but that, I think that's the item that I like most. Man, we are doing swag wrong these days. You'd be surprised. I mean, the, the sorts of things I used to come up with, yeah. Actually, we, we talked briefly, I don't know if it's in the recording or not, but about Taft-Hartley and um, Gavin's got like a, a selection of anti-Taft-Hartley ties that Walter Ruther wore around so those are kind of cool it's like a graphic <laughs> he had ties made that's amazing i don't think he actually made them i think somebody else made them and he just happened to wear it all the time for <laughs> you know a certain amount of time so and we also have a lot of photos of him wearing these ties but they're actually you know he represents apparel makers like there's no reason why d taylor doesn't have his own ties out there it's a great point yeah <laughs> you know, I feel like the one thing that could get me to wear a tie at my job is if it was an anti-Taft-Hartley tie. I, I would totally <laughs> wear that. Maybe you can get a replica made. I'm honestly, if you if you send the pictures, I will spring for it. There are several <laughs> colorways. He's not lying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the frightening part. I'll actually do it. Yeah. Wow. I got scared when you just said there's several yeah. colors. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, Connor. <laughs> Well, that means that I'll be able to match it with whatever I'm wearing. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, you know, it's uh, some of what you mentioned, like, I think is really, it's a really cool part about actually doing historical research, because I know that, like, even as uh, researching my, my doctoral dissertation, like, the one moment that, like, I felt, holy shit, this is cool was I was in the Irish Labor History uh, Society archives and I was going through Cahill O'Shannon's um, papers and he was an Irish labor leader and a member of the Labor Party and pulled out a letter and it was from James Connolly. And I just looked at it. It was signed by James Connolly. I was just like, holy shit, this is the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's amazing to actually hold that piece of history in your hands. Mm -hmm. It's a real human connection. Like you, you realize that these figures are not just somebody in a book. They're we're real people, and that you know they're they're making hard choices all the time. I mean, one of the things that that irks me a little bit is when people say things like, "Oh, you know, things are real tough for the labor movement right now. Who knows? Uh, this is this is a hard time." But one of the things that you really get if you're going through the labor archives quite a bit is that like things have been much harder than this, and people 
found ways to get through it. And you can find their decision process in the archives. Like we've got these like letters back and forth from Janora and Saul Dollinger and they're, you know, they're radicals that were in Detroit and just them having conversations about, you know, here's our personal life, here's some house stuff we got to deal with. And then here are our radical views and how we fit them into all that bigger picture of who we are as real human beings. Um, so I think, you know, just being able to find out how people got through much tougher times than this and actually built a, a really powerful and strong movement as a result. I think that's one of the strongest things that we can offer for, for the future. Wow, Megan, that's beautiful. That is yeah. a great <laughs> note to just kind of end on. Wow. I feel right. like we don't need yeah. to do, we usually do union buster of the week and I'm like, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. That. we're going to end on a high. We're going to end on a high. We're going to end on the inspiring tone of where we can take our movement next. So uh, thank you. Abs- thank you, Megan and uh, Gavin for, uh, for being on. Um, you know, I'm uh, Connor, and as always, you can follow each of us on Twitter. Um, I'm at the House Red. Uh, Diana is at, at Heya Diana. Um, producer Matt is at Redacted. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. Yeah, he doesn't exist. Um, and Gavin and Megan, uh, before we uh, before we sign off, do you two have anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, we also have so. Um, at Ruther Library is our, our handle on most platforms, and it's R-E-U-T-H-E-R, is how you spell Ruther. Um, we do a podcast, too. So sometimes it's about, like, our researchers will talk or will, you know, the staff will talk about things that they found, or um, sometimes student workers will talk about stuff that they've done with us. And that one is um, Tales from the Ruther Library, so you can find that on any podcast platform. And then um, a lot of our collection archivists have separate things that are just about their collections. So Gavin's got UAW Twitter. Yes, my Twitter is at UAW underscore archivist. So a lot of those, you know, cool things I find, um, like, you know, the lighter that plays Solidarity Forever. Take a, or a polo a with a bunch, was it a polo with a bunch of union logos on it? With, with all the union logos on it. I, you know, I like to share that with the world and let them know, you know, just how cool <laughs> these collections are. Well, I, I was also just going to say, if you want to learn more about the collections, uh, you can search our finding aids to see what we have at ruther.wayne.edu. Um, we have recently been doing like um, a pub trivia game through Zoom. Um, and so we've done a couple of those. Actually, um, we did have a Myra Wolfgang question during the last... Um, Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> so that was cool. Um, what I was think, the question? Can you remember, Gavin? It was... My it, it, what union uh my was my Wolfgang uh from I think was the oh man it. I would have gotten one <laughs> I would have gotten one question. <laughs> there may have been a couple. There were some like Detroit ones also. Our co-host Jeff, who <laughs> wasn't able to join us tonight, actually did like it was like a last minute thing, and he jumped on and he loved it. It was a lot of fun. So I highly recommend folks to join the next one. And I think I'm yeah I'm try on. Yeah, I think the next one we're going to do is going to be on June 15th, but look at our social media. We'll put up some flyers and stuff and you'll see it. So. June 15th. We'll, we'll promote it on, on the pod. Cool. All right. Uh, fantastic. Uh, so again, thank you, Gavin and Megan. Um, and of course, uh, please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Union Thought, T-H-O-T, pod. Um, and definitely like and uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what we're doing, um, first off, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, let us know. 
please like the the more that you tell us that we're doing good stuff uh frankly the better um and of course please make sure to share the podcast with your friends um so thank you everyone and we are signing off until next week bye